0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Target
2: orange grid reference, checks. Target distance, eight miles. Roger, eight miles. Telemetric guidance computer into orange grid. Telemetric
0: guidance computer into orange grid.
2: Target distance, seven miles. Correct track indicator minus seven. Roger, seven miles. Track GPI acceleration factor.
0: GPI acceleration factor set.
1: Target distance six miles. Roger, six miles. Pulse ID transponder active. Pulse ID transponder active. This thing turns out to be half as important as I figured it just might be. I'd say that you're all in line for some important promotions and personal citations when this thing's over with. That goes for every last one of you, regardless of your race, color, or your creed. Let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do.
3: Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, September 1st, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right,
0: broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right.
3: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Two very different themes on Just Right today. In the second half of the hour, I'll be reaching a bit outside of my own area of expertise or knowledge as we take a look at Canada's pending purchase of the F-35 jets amidst the political intrigue that Canada will not purchase the F-35. We'll be kicking off that second part of our show today with a 2013 commentary and story, as wonderfully told by Bill Whittle about the F-22, which at that time was the precursor to the F-35 and the most sophisticated plane on the planet. So should Canada buy the F-35, or should Justin Trudeau go ahead with his election-announced plans to not buy the F-35? But we're hoping that by the time you hear what we have for you today on that topic, that you'll have a pretty good idea of what that debate is all about and why
0: it is so important. Robert, what's on your agenda today? Absolutely something horrific, Bob, is on my agenda today. But before I get into the horror, uh, I'd like to remind our listeners before I begin to um, write us at feedbackjustrightmedia.org if you've got any uh, comments or questions. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, and uh, visit our website, JustRightMedia.org, where you can find links to all of our social media and all of past episodes of Just Right. Now, the horror I'm getting into. Anyone familiar with Ayn Rand's publication, The Objectivist? Remember the Objectivist, Bob? Is that oh, yes. big, thick, blue book? Yep, I have. In fact, you've got one behind right you behind me. That's <laughs> one of two copies that I happen to have. Yeah. Um, well, the Objectivist. Um, anybody familiar with it will recall the regular feature she included in several issues, called "From the Horror File." Oh, yeah. Snippets of news items or speeches which exemplified the worst of contemporary philosophy. The exemplars were categorized on one of the five branches of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, or aesthetics, or under some specific subbranch such as education or psychology. The horror files were presented usually without comment by Rand, As anyone familiar with her, philosophy of objectivism would have readily seen why she would include them and label them as being horrific. Having read The Objectivist, I could no longer read a newspaper or magazine or listen to speeches or experts or politicians without asking myself, would this fit into my own horror file? For the past couple of years, I've been collecting such items and have amassed hundreds of horrific examples of mental evasion, irrationality, immorality, left-wing lunacy, and cultural atrocities. I have box loads of those things just out there in the <laughs> next room. They're called newspaper clippings. Yes. <laughs> no, I thought I'd share some of them with you today and also go over some of Rand's items uh, just to let you know what kind of things she chose to put into her horror file. Although I'm sure that many of you uh, many of you will have heard a lot of these before and are, and are familiar with them. I wonder if you'd have thought of them in the same philosophic terms as I or Miss Arand did. It may be an indication of our times, just to to pick up on your point, Bob, that when Rand wrote The Objectivist from 1966 to 1971, many of the files were sent in by her readers. If she were alive today and if The Objectivist were still in print, there'd be no need for readers to submit their findings of horrific philosophy. Any page of any newspaper or magazine is now full of them. In fact, it would be more difficult (laughs) to find examples of objective journalism or objective science or objective art or of objective acts of moral behavior than to find uh, the opposites.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: From the objectivist of November 1966, as reported in Las Vegas Review-Journal, November 30th, 1965, filed under Ethics. One of the lucky things in this world is to have something obviously wrong with you. It ordinarily helps a human being to get ahead if he has a recognizable, but not too repulsive, a defect. We expect excellence always from our champions, and usually from each other, but we also expect failure and lack of performance from them sometimes too. Every hero that has embedded himself deeply and lastingly in the affections of mankind has had a recognizable wart. This enables the rest of us to identify ourselves with him and smile and say, well, after all, he was human too. Now, from my own file, dated July 28th, 2015, as reported in The Guardian and filed under Ethics. Get a load of this, Bob. Okay. Katie Hopkins is, quote, super keen on euthanasia vans, unquote, and says they are far too many old people. The Sun columnist, who launches her own panel show, If Katie Hopkins Ruled the World, next month. Said it is ridiculous to live in a country where we can put down dogs, we can put dogs to sleep, but not people. In an interview by Michael Burke in Radio Times Magazine, Hopkins says, We just have far too many old people. Asked for her How many solution? does she have? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if you know, she. It implies ownership right off the bat. Yeah, right? I like know. I own somebody, you're Yeah, right? you're, you get the idea yeah. why this is included. Yeah. As for her solution, she said, Easy, euthanasia vans, just like ice cream vans that would come to your home. The former Celebrity Big Brother con- contestant added, It would all be perfectly charming. They might even have a nice little tune they'd play. I mean this genuinely. I'm super keen on euthanasia vans. We need to accept that just because med- medical advances mean we can live longer, it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Unquote. The only comment I have is... You just can't make this stuff up. Oh, wait, you can. Anyone remember the movie Soylent Green?
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, but when I hear a comment like that, I almost wonder if it was made up. It's almost hard to believe that anybody can think like that.
0: Uh, Apparently, it is absolutely genuine.
3: I mean, it's a different, it's it's not the argument about, you know, the right to die or anything like that. No.
0: That's idiocy. No, this is about we have far too many old people. Uh
4: who uh, you well, know, who, so who are you yeah.
0: to say that? Shall somebody say that to you when you're 65? hmm Or maybe 50. That's old for a, for a 20-year-old. Right. What a load of nonsense. From the objectivist of December 1967, as reported in the New York Times Magazine, January 29, 1967, and filed under epistemology, some of Marshall McLuhan's insights are so original that they evade immediate understanding. Other paragraphs may forever evade explication. Most clear writing is a sign that there is no exploration going on, he rationalizes. Quote, clear prose indicates absence of thought. (laughs) Yep, my own comment on that is that if the medium is the message, Mr. McLoon, then the medium for you is mud. From my own file on epistemology, I will play an audio clip from a lecture given by Christopher Monckton during his visit to London, Ontario in 2012. The lecture was on the topic of climate change and while answering a question from the audience, Moncton was interrupted by another member of the audience, one Dr. Gordon McBean, who is president of the International Council for Science and a contributor to the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change. Let's give a listen.
1: Now, um, the point is this, that The IPCC's work is not peer-reviewed in any sense recognized to science. If you send a paper to a journal for peer review, it is sent out to reviewers whom the editors find to be expert in that field. They then write their reviews. If the author then fails to make changes, then the paper does not get published. Now, the IPCC's authors, if they write and then the reviewers say, oh, no, no, we don't think this is right. We don't think, let us say, that the Himalayan glaciers are going to disappear in only 25 years. Then the IPCC's authors say, we don't care. We want to influence governments. That was, in effect, what Mr. Lau, who was the co- coordinating lead author of that chapter in the 2007 report, said. He said, we wanted to influence government, so we weren't going to change it. We knew the figure was wrong. So they're putting in figures they know to be wrong, even when the reviewers tell them not to. You can't do that in a properly peer-reviewed document. And it's a fundamental defect in the whole way the IPCC happens. It is not a scientific organization. It was set up as a political organization explicitly by uh, Sir Maurice Strong 25 years ago. He said that that was what he was doing. He did not intend it to be scientific. It wasn't and isn't and never will be scientific and as soon as it is swept away, the happier I
5: shall be.
0: Thank you so much. I think, Gordon, we should get a chance to have a few moments to comment, and then ask a question, please. Thank you. I'd like to ask
1: if you've ever asked the distinguished UK scientist, for example, Sir John Houghton. Oh, yeah.
0: Houghton? Speak up, please, yeah. Louder. Louder. We're not here you. They're not here.
1: Sir John Houghton is an eminent British scientist, fellow of the Royal Society, professor at Oxford, as I recall, who told me in my days when I was <coughs> working with him that he many times went to checkers and spent the weekends with Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister after you left. Can you tell me if you've ever spoken to Sir John Houghton and you telling me, are you going to tell this audience that he was a liar? What I'm going to tell this audience is that he was wrong. As I said, there are many reasons why the experts are wrong some of the time. I'm not saying experts are always wrong, but just because they've got fancy names and titles. That doesn't guarantee that they are right. And it was 2,300 years ago, sir, that the philosopher Aristotle first codified the fallacies of human logic, not the least of which the best move made, was the argumentum ad verecundiam the argument from false appeal to authority. Mm. I don't care what anybody says in science, however eminent they are, if what they say is contradicted by the evidence.
0: Moncton's entire lecture, by the way, is available exclusively on Just raid's YouTube channel, including the exchange with McBean. I, I was actually the one to record it. That was an interesting um, exchange, by the way, from a supposed expert, on climate uh, change, a scientist, and in um, Christopher Monckton, who may not be an expert in climate science, but is someone who knows a darn sight better than most on how good science is done and how people can be easily fooled by people who make appeals to authority rather than to evidence. It would have been—it would have been nice if
3: he had not just made an appeal to an authority but stated a fact. Like, I disagree yeah. that this fact is so. Yeah. And then you'd have something to argue about. Not just, are you going to you call know so Mr. So? Houghton a yeah. liar?
0: <laughs> no, he's just wrong. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of ad hominem attack on Moncton's character to c- suggest that he would be so low to call an eminent scientist a liar speaks to McBean's character. Oh, very character. much so, very much so. You know? And this, uh, this particular, uh, this person um, stormed out of the lecture attended by maybe a hundred people or so. And he and was quite disruptive. From the objectivist of July 1967, as reported in the Omaha World Herald of July 30th, 66, and filed under politics. Fifteen Omaha students working at the post office as summer vacation replacements were fired last week. Why? Because they had bungled their jobs? No, because they were too slow or had caused mix-ups in the mail? No, not at all. They were asked to resign because they were not sufficiently needy, because it had been officially determined that other applicants were poorer. Under this year's post office plan, the test is not, what can you do, but rather, how badly do you need the money? Employment is placed on a patronage basis, the patronage of poverty. Now, again, under my, uh, my own hero files, um, you know, it's a recent edition again. It's an audio file of Tucson talk show host James T. Harris commenting on the recent race riots in his hometown of Milwaukee. Listen to this.
5: Hey, Facebook friends. I was hanging out with my friends last night when I got uh, looked down at my phone and saw that I was getting inundated with text. And these texts were coming in, of course, from uh, the great state of Wisconsin, from my hometown, Milwaukee, from a neighborhood that I call the Urban Mayberry. And it just happened to be the very place where the rioting broke out last night. Um, I was getting uh, the text that really stood out was the text that said, James, Milwaukee is burning. Milwaukee is burning. Now, this morning, I heard a a press conference, or I should say, I think the press conference was last night, but it was by Alderman Khalif Rainey. And I think that he is the latest example of why you should never have a community organizer. You should never vote in a community organizer into office to represent you. This guy was an asshat, and he represents the community that I used to live in. Um, He talked about uh, he he said that Milwaukee, Wisconsin was the worst city for black people to live in. Oh, okay. well, move. But then it got better. He talked about how this violence that broke out last night was a warning cry, a warning cry to who? He said that um, he asked the question, where do we go from here? He said that we have inequities, we have injustices, we have unemployment, we have undereducation, and this is a problem that has to be addressed. And I thought to myself, well, he, thought, he said this is a problem that has to change. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, it needs to change. But the problem here is Milwaukee, Wisconsin has been a city that has been run exclusively by Democrats for decades. I don't remember the last Republican governor Milwaukee ever had. The city is run by the left. So these problems, uh, Alderman Rainey, are are wholly from the left. So if you want to change things, I got a brilliant idea. Why don't you elect a Republican and then see what happens? Some people said they're embarrassed by what happened in Wisconsin. last night. They're embarrassed by what happened in Milwaukee. I'm not embarrassed. I'm beyond that. What I'm simply trying to say is... When it comes to the ballot box, why do people keep voting in the same problems and then complain about the problems? You keep voting Democrat. And then you complain and you moan about the inequities and the injustices and the unemployment and the undereducation and the low graduation rate and the high incarceration rate. And then the community organizer-in-chief goes ahead, I'm going to help you people out. I'm going to release prisoners. I'm going to change the discipline system in schools. I'm going to increase welfare. As if that's a solution to the problem. People, wake up. I am afraid that Americans of African descent are becoming the Americans' version of the Palestinians. Take that for what it's worth,
0: now, Mr. Harris isn't you know the uh, the issue um, here, of course he's just the messenger. It's the race riots and the response by the politicians that uh, is the reason I included it in my horror file under politics, and why I can sympathize with Mr. Harris' as regarding his observations of the complete ineptitude of the left's destruction, or I should say aptitude <laughs> in the left's destruction of American cities. I feel it has to be said that his solution of voting Republican would not necessarily solve the problems as he sees them. What is needed, and this is where Ayn Rand comes in in the philosophy of objectivism because she identified it. What is needed is a complete cultural change spanning all areas of society from the academic to the arts Voting out the Democrats who believe that the rich should sacrifice themselves to the poor as a duty to the country and replacing them with Republicans who would ask people to do the exact same thing but as a duty to God is not going to change the underlying philosophic disease which leads to the horror seen in Milwaukee today or in any other American city tomorrow. This is from the Objectivist of May 1968, as reported in the London Daily Telegraph, October 3, 1967, and filed under Aesthetics. A grave in Central Park, dug by two gravediggers for the customary fee of $50 each and then filled in, has become New York's latest work of art, invisible sculpture, or unsculpture, city officials, officials call it. Clay's Oldenburg, a leading pop artist at whose uh, request the grave was dug behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art yesterday, calls it underground sculpture. Mr. Sam Green, New York's consultant on sculpture, said, Everything is art, if it's chosen by the artist to be art. You can say it is good art or bad art, but you can't say it isn't art. Just because you can't see a statue doesn't mean it isn't there. (laughs) Yep. That's why Lorraine did not leave any comments after these. They're self-evidently poor philosophy. It's hard to know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Except to laugh. Yes, except to laugh, yes. From my own files on aesthetics, from the UK edition of the Huffington Post, dated (laughs) April 22nd, 2014. A Swiss artist has been squeezing paint-filled eggs out of her vagina, Mm. allowing them to burst colorfully onto blank canvases. Yes, you read that right. Milo Moiré has been diligently hunched over a pair of stepladders laying her plop eggs, all in the name of art. Moiré's very public and very naked performance art took place outside this year's Art Cologne Fair in Germany. The 31-year-old told Huffington Post UK... Quote, I'm aware that my art, specifically my performance, polarize and generate loud criticism. I'm interested in pushing boundaries through art, living and expressing my art with my body and mind while opening mental doors. It's more than just my naked body, my vagina. A lot of people out there are reflecting, and I accept when someone doesn't understand the meaning of my art. Art is personal. When I perform, I'm at one with myself. Focused and calm, I feel strong because I'm absolutely convinced about my work. Literature on Moyer's website muses on, the compressed birth of a work of art, laboriously leaves the egg the birth canal of the artist and shatters on the screen, red color flowing out. The next egg holds a different color and thus arises gradually, accompanied only by loud plops, an abstract work, archaic uncontrolled and intuitive at the end of almost meditative type birth performance the stained canvas is folded smoothed and unfolded to a symmetrical mirror image of surprising colors and powerful because of its universal symbolism the resulting directly from my vagina or from the vagina images instantly Chains of thought-free over creation fear. I don't know what that means, Bob. I mean that that's just like a string of words coming in for website. Well, it
3: gives the word vagina monologue a whole new meaning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> to continue on, what from her page she says the symbolic power of the casual and the creative power of femininity. So where, again, where, what do you comment? What do you say about such art? Well, I have a question. Mm-hmm. What's the art? The stains left on the sheet or the performance of putting them there? She called it performance art, yeah. so I guess that's part of it. And then I guess the um, the resulting plop art. <laughs> <laughs> she hangs on somebody's wall, some poor yeah. sod's wall. Yeah. Talk <laughs> about leaving a stain on your career. <laughs> <clears throat> Under Metafix, in the Objectivist of July 1967, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, December 15, 1966, quote, Chrysler Corporation recently broke ground for its Turkish plant by having a Muslim holy man slaughter a ram on the site rain washed the animal's blood into the ground a good omen according to chrysler <laughs> <laughs> yeah in my own horror file as reported by abc online out of australia dated january 25 2016 and filed under metaphysics transgender athletes should be allowed to compete in the Olympics and other international events without undergoing sex reassignment surgery according to recommendations by International Olympic Committee medical officials IOC medical officials said on Sunday they changed their policy to adapt to current scientific social and legal attitudes on transgender issues and I suggest that if you don't understand why I would include that news item on a you know under the uh, metaphysics just consider why it is categorized under that rubric metaphysics which by the way is the branch of philosophy which deals with reality and identity <laughs> my only comment wishing or imagining something doesn't necessarily make it so
5: sometimes i get real deep with stuff can you imagine check this out how about we all have the power to just think about where we wanted to be at and we could just be there wouldn't that be cool I get deep. Let me tell you how deep I get before I get off into this joke. Imagine if everybody in here right now, imagine if we all walked outside right now and we were already there. (laughs) Smoke one, you know what I'm talking about.
4: Hi everybody, I'm Bill Whittle and this is Afterburner. Back in November 1st of 2012, two Iranian Su-25 jets attempted to intercept the United States unmanned Predator drone operating in international airspace over the Persian Gulf. The Obama administration released the information on November 8th, by the way, after the election had been safely won. Now, the Iranian jets fired a few bursts of machine gun fire, but they missed the drone. It's actually harder than it sounds. The Predator is small, slow, and pretty hard to hit. But firing on a nation's aircraft, manned or unmanned, while over international waters constitutes an act of war. And I recall feeling that the lack of response on the part of the Obama administration was yet another signal to the most dangerous regime on the planet, that while the American sword may still be strong and sharp and supple, the arm that wields it had grown weak and unskilled and indecisive. Then in March of this year, something really remarkable happened. And it's something we can learn a lot from if we're so inclined. Once again, a US MQ-1 Predator drone was flying routine surveillance in international airspace. Iran launched an intercept mission, this time by an F-4 Phantom II, the United States Air Force workhorse of the Vietnam era and one of many American jets inherited by the Iranians after the overthrow of the Shah in 1979. Now, as the Iranian jet got within 16 miles of his target, the Predator drone, the pilot was, shall we say, somewhat surprised to notice an American F-22 Raptor which had materialized out of thin air just off his left wing. The two pilots looked at each other for a moment, one considerably calmer than the other, I might add, at which point the American pilot switched to the Iranian frequency and said, you really ought to go home. And he did. Now, to some people, this is exactly the kind of showboating bravado that gets us into wars. But to those of us with a passion for history, and especially the lessons of history, this is something different. For us, this is the kind of showboating bravado that keeps us out of wars. Think of all of the elements involved here. First, you have an aggressive Iranian regime that was attempting to recreate one of tens, if not scores, if not thousands, of acts of war against the great state in America. Let's not forget that many, if not most, of the brave men and women we lost in Iraq were victims of improvised explosive devices that were either designed by, built by, and or deployed by Iranian agents. The list of aggressions against the United States since Iran declared war on America in 1979 is long and sad and enraging. Now, second, you have in this Iranian regime a series of religious fanatics who, after 35 years now, undoubtedly believe their own press clippings about the strength of their own technology relative to ours. Third, you have in that same regime a view of the United States as being so politically weak and timid and irresolute, led by a lightweight who is in way over his head and utterly rudderless with regard to Iranian ally Syria, that it launched a single fighter jet to commit an act of war with utter impunity. Then what happened? Did the Iranian air traffic controllers see the U.S. jets rise from carriers or from land-based airfields and track the incoming response? No, because if they had, they would have vectored their jet away from the drone while they whistled a cheerful tune over the radio. Now that Raptor just appeared out of thin air. The F-22 Raptor is, without any question whatsoever, the world's most advanced air superiority fighter. That jet was just a few feet beneath and behind the Iranian F-4, casually inspecting its weapons load. And when he rolled out on the Iranian's wing, I assure you that after the mission was over, the Iranian ground crew searched the cockpit in vain for the missing seat cushion. Now, that is a calculation that the Iranians did not expect and one that they will not soon forget, that an American strike aircraft could have attached itself like a Remora to one of their fighters on a combat mission will leave a deep and lasting impression upon them. The casualness of it all, the lack of drama, that's what's gonna gall them the most, you see. This incident reminds their political leaders in the clearest of all possible ways of the immense capability gap between our armed forces and theirs, a gap they're able to convince themselves is narrowing so long as it's not put to the test, like it was in this incident. Now, it's incidents like this that punch through political calculations of estimations of strength and weakness and provide our enemies who continue to plot and scheme and parse and plan that maybe, out in the real world, they really ought to go home.
3: You are listening to Just Right, our weekly broadcast get-together that can be found entirely archived online at www.justrightmedia.org. What we just heard was one of the many great Bill Whittle spins on an issue or topic told in a way that is uniquely his. He was, of course, speaking about the F-22 Raptor, the predecessor to the F-35, which did not exist at the time of Bill Whittle's 2013 commentary. His story is what got me interested in the whole issue of the F-35 in the first place. What's really important about Bill Whittle's story is the principle behind it. Thanks to the power of the F-22, what could have been a battle confrontation was instead a casual and routine patrol. Quote, the casualness of it all, the lack of drama, notes Whittle. Now, consider the contrast of that lack of drama reality he's just related to the story told in our show opener today. From the classic movie, Dr. Strangelove, We hear of the crew of a bomber who was falsely signaled to drop a nuclear bomb on the Soviet Union and had no way of effectively confirming what was a false order which they ended up carrying out. You recall that movie, eh, Robert? Now, I'll say right up front that were it up to me, the F-35, would be the way to go, hands down, just based on everything I've been reading and looking at. Because when it comes to any issues of national defense and offense, military supremacy is a necessity. Now, there's a false belief, particularly in North America, that the threat of real, physical war is so remote a possibility that it cannot really be considered a priority. But this has never been true in mankind's history and never will be true. History is replete, marked by wars, whether the ancient wars of Athens and Greece, World War I, you know, the war to end all wars, or all of the other wars that have continued ceaselessly since then. There are wars raging as we speak. What has kept North America relatively immune from the direct home, soil, physical ramifications of this has been the West's supreme defense capability, which is a technological issue in terms of armaments and, you know, which jets to buy, etc. It shouldn't be a political one in terms of compromising national security. But that seems to be what's at the heart of concerns about Canada's uh, decision on the F-35, which has been changing with each passing news story. Now, I ran into this one. This is one of the more current stories. uh, August 19th. Dueling fighters thrust into limelight, writes David Quote, Boeing with its Super Hornet and Lockheed with the F-35 came face to face in Abbotsford, BC. The Liberal government is expected to decide within months how it wants to proceed on replacing Canada's aging fleet of CF-18 fighters. Justin Trudeau came to power last fall, pledging that Liberal government would not buy the F-35. An aircraft, he said, was too expensive and unnecessary, given Canada's needs. In June... Lockheed Martin almost saw its hopes of selling planes to Canada disappear completely, which we'll review in a moment. The Liberal government was close to moving on an interim purchase of Super Hornets, and Trudeau claimed the F-35, quote, does not work and is far from working.
0: That's what a lot of people still believe. Uh, did you hear any of those stories about the no, F-35? No, but I, I, I have to get the, uh, the uh, source of that from you because that's going in my horror file. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Especially where he says that um, it's too expensive for our needs. Excuse me, Mr. Trudeau, our needs is to survive as a nation and yeah. to protect the sovereignty of our of our borders and our country. Since what when what
3: price do you put on that? And since when has price been, been an an issue with need when it comes to all the social services his government is offering? Oh yeah, right? yeah. There's no there's no cap on that. That prompted Lockheed Martin to warn that Canadian companies who had contracts on the F thirty five would suffer. By the way, Canadian companies are doing a lot of business on the F thirty five. And they said plans for a Super Hornet interim deal seemed to disappear. As for Trudeau's F-35 comment, Jack Chrysler, one of Lockheed Martin's top F-35 officials, has a diplomatic response. Quote, the evidence is not consistent with a statement like that. We already heard from Bill Whittle about the capabilities of the F-22, which is also briefly mentioned in our upcoming audio selection. But the big question to be answered is just what the heck is so special about the F-35 in the first place? And who can we believe or trust to give us some kind of objective perspective on that question? Well, one thing you could do is what the am 980's Andrew Lawton did back on June 23rd. He interviewed F-35 test pilot Billy Flynn and asked him that very question which you'll hear answered on this side of our upcoming bumper. On the other side of the bumper, Bill Whittle wraps up his 2013 commentary on the F-22, and when we return, we'll compare notes.
6: But I had the opportunity through a contact of mine who works for a communications company that does some work with Lockheed Martin to uh, link up with Billy Flynn, who, in addition to being an F-35 test pilot, his day job is literally to fly fighter jets around, which I think sounds pretty cool. Uh, He's also a 23-year Canadian Armed Forces fighter pilot veteran. And uh, he joins me on the line now to talk a little bit about uh, the F-35 and ultimately just being a fighter pilot in such a plane. Uh, Billy, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Andrew, thanks for having me today. So we have in Canada, I mean, a long-standing uh, discussion uh, around controversy with these purchases, and I think a lot of people have, especially with the direction our our country went previously, raised uh, some questions about it. Now that we're at a point where we're looking at this again, the government continues to look into it, a lot of Canadians don't really have a frame of reference for what makes a good jet, what makes a bad jet, what makes, uh, I guess, one that will meet the country's needs and not... What is it that defines or differentiates these from other ones?
2: Um, The F-35 is uh, the beginning of the wave of fifth-generation fighters. It completely changes what a fighter airplane will do in the skies. It's defined in general terms by two parts or two attributes. First, it is stealthy, and second of all, it has sensor fusion. So stealth, first of all, stealth, you and I... uh, the best way to think of it is Harry Potter and the Cloak of Invisibility, <laughs> uh, like the books and movies we all read to our kids and I know we all saw the movies it 's important in the Canadian context because it allows it will allow Canadian pilots to come and go with absolute impunity, whether it 's in the Arctic or uh, whenever deployed, and that means they 're going to come back home it 's about survivability in the Canadian context and just to be clear, you can't be half-stealthy. You, you either build an airplane to be completely stealthy from the ground up or it is not. It's an either-or, and that really isn't a distinction, is a distinction when we talk about fourth-generation fighters that are out there versus an F-35. So the second part is sensor fusion. I see when I fly an F-35 everything that exists on the ground over the sea and in the air for hundreds and hundreds of miles, 360 degrees around me. It all gets fused together in the presentations that I see in the two iPad screens that I look at in my workspace. It matters in Canada because we're going to talk about sovereignty protection over the Arctic and patrolling and controlling the uh, hundreds, the millions of square miles of arctic sovereign canadian territory and to see all that vast airspace and over the ground takes an airplane or uh, airplanes like the f-35 to cover the astonishing distances that we're talking about and they are orders of magnitude more in what we see than the fourth generation airplanes i was a typhoon test pilot i first flew the cf eighteen. 33 years ago, and I've flown uh, F-16s for years. All those fourth-generation airplanes were great in their day, but they are all passe now, replaced in um, now 11 different nations by the F-35. The iPads and the helmet I wear, which is a lot like Tony Stark wears in the Iron Man or Avenger movies, that allows me to uh, fuse and synthesize and handle all that data. It's a lot like a video game where Um, to every kid out there, the video game inevitably wins. We get overloaded, and that happened in all those fourth-generation jets, including the ones in competition against the F-35. At some point, the human loses, and the only way you can uh, get to the data that's really important, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, is through the technology of sensor fusion that's in the F-22 Raptor that the American Air Force flies, and the F-35, and you either have that data or you're not in, you'll not be able to survive out there. So the F-35 does everything the Hornet does. And then another complete different dimension. So it goes, I fly uh, F-35s almost every day. It goes 700 nautical miles per hour. That's 1,300 kilometers an hour full of bombs and missiles. That really means it is faster than an F-18 when it's ready for combat. It goes further in distance and stays up in the air longer than any of the cf what the cf-18 did it fights air to air on a completely different dimension dramatically more lethal than a cf-18 did and it drops all the bombs that the cf-18 drops in this day and age, the laser-guided bombs and the GPS-guided bombs, and shoots all those missiles. So it does all of that. But what it does that's really unique is it gathers information. It's a, it's a node of uh, sucking up, sponging up data from everything that the enemy has out there. And it, allows, it transmits all that data back to the ground so that commanders can see what's out there hundreds and hundreds of kilometers ahead of the battle space so that you completely own The battle space, you're omnipotent out there. Uh, Everything we've seen from the F-35 tells us that uh, it does everything the fourth-generation airplanes did and then another dimension more. 48 F-35s will be based at Fairbanks, Alaska by the American Air Force patrolling over the Arctic territories. Denmark will fly F-35s over Greenland to protect their sovereign territory. Norway, in the far north of Norway, will f35s single engine is not an issue for technical reasons in any discussion in Canada but I appreciate how sensitive it is sensitive it is for people out there um, it's really important to understand that our Russian friends with seven to eight production lines building fighters and bombers today are taking the Arctic very seriously they built and refurbished 15 bases inside the Arctic Circle in 2015 alone, our threat is very, very real. The only airplane that can go far enough, can stay in the air long enough to patrol the Arctic coast, see everything that's out there, and be invisible to the enemy so that our men and women come back is an F-35. And if you are not a stealthy airplane up against the Russian stealth Fighters and the very capable Russian aggressive fourth generation fighters, you're not coming home whether you have one engine or two unless you have a stealth fighter underneath your, uh, that you're flying.
4: The F-22 is the most remarkable revolutionary advance in fighter aircraft ever. The Obama administration canceled the F-22 program with well under 200 total aircraft. He was aided in this by Senator John McCain, who called the F-22 an aircraft without a mission. Quote, there is no purpose, no mission in Afghanistan or Iraq unless you believe that Al-Qaeda is going to have a fleet of aircraft, unquote, said the man who by once again highlighting the maxim that our leaders are always preparing to fight the last war, daily proves to me his lack of fitness to have been president or even a senator. Quoted in an ABC News article, McCain said, facts are stubborn things. The F-22 has not flown a single combat mission. I don't think the F-22 will ever be seen in the combat it was designed to counter because that threat is no longer in existence, unquote. Meanwhile, Russia and China, rearming to the teeth, have prototypes of stealth fighter aircraft that will soon be in full production. And they're not afraid of these two men. And based on the shows of political weakness and lack of strength and foresight on the part of our current political leadership, they may decide, and someday soon, that they do not, in fact, want to go home. Oh, one more thing. Modern combat hinges upon one thing and one thing only, control of the airspace over the battlefield. Air superiority means you're better in the skies than the other guy. Air supremacy means there is no other guy.
3: That story, as told by Bill Whittle, is certainly one way to personify what might be at stake with respect to the kind of weaponry the Western nations should be buying. And what we heard from test pilot Billy Flynn before the bumper certainly seems to confirm... What appears to be a real consensus on the issue, unlike the consensus we hear about
0: climate change all the time, Robert? Well, what I took away from the clips, Bob, was that the more I listened to the technical issues involved, the more I think that people like um, Justin Trudeau and the government should stay out of the, uh, the decision-making process. I think that the government's role in procurement of military uh, machinery is to simply say, here's your budget, Deal with it as you wish, right? Buy what you can out of it using your more superior knowledge than the people sitting in the House of Commons. If you have an item that you think that the government should be aware of, come to us and say, that, you know, we think that we should have the F-35. It's a lot of money. We, based on our more superior opinion than yours, though they're not going to say that, wish to have so many extra billions of dollars. That's where the government can come in and say, yes, we're going to increase your budget based on your superior knowledge. Well, that technically is how it should be working now because the, the government's advised by their military advisors. Yeah, right? but, right, I, but- I, I get the suspicion that there's too much politics in here. For example, when Justin Trudeau would come out before the election and say that we're not going to buy the F-35s, you got to say, "Well, well, why? It's too expensive." Well, when the military says that we need it, and you're none saying none of that is
3: true anymore. Yeah. A- and the story goes like this, and, and this is what I wanted to cover in this part of the show was a history of what the, what the conflict and the, and the and the controversy has been about. Here's a brief recap of some of the current events, history, and news stories that I was following leading up to our discussion today and most of them occurred during the month of June. And on June 7th, John Iveson for the National Post had an article titled, Liberals look like Tories on JETS file. Government has lost its moorings and he says that the idea that political power corrupts is hardly new. And he says, assuming Post Media's prediction that the Liberals will buy Boeing Super Hornet fighter jets to bridge a, quote, capability gap comes to pass, and they believe that would be the case, he says it signals a government that has lost its moorings. The benefits in the short term for the Liberals are obvious, he writes. It postpones the need for competition to replace the CF-18s, a competition Lockheed Martin's F-35 might win unless it is specifically excluded. Now, there's a fair fair contest for you, right? Just don't let them be part of it. Because, by the way, it has been winning all the contests that every other country put it to around the world.
0: It sort of reminds me so, of the municipal situation here in London, Ontario, where the uh, the requirements for the vehicles that they wanted to purchase for um, staff were so specific that only the Ford Escort would fit the bill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. but and, um, and, and oddly enough, I think they were built... Um, nearby. So there's ways the politicians can get involved in the decision-making process, which are, uh, well, there's no other word for it, corrupt.
3: Agree. By sole sourcing the contract, writes Iveson, they will be doing exactly what the conservatives did when they chose the F-35 in the first place. And he says what's clear is that the purchase of the super hornets will come with costs because Canada needs a fighter jet for the next 40 years. And he writes, the liberal time horizon looks shorter by, say, 37 years. (laughs) Let me see, 40 take away 37, that's 3. Let me see, that would be the next election. That's how far ahead they think. That's the bottom line, he writes. The Canadian people and their armed forces deserve the straight goods, an open and transparent competition that ends up choosing the plane best suited to defending this country against all threats. The liberals and conservatives now look indistinguishable on this file, just as the creatures of Animal Farm eventually saw the pigs and the humans as tantamount. They they looked from pig to man and from man to pig, but already it was impossible to say which was which, he writes. What I might say is that his own article suggests that that's not the issue, that the problem is not the similarity of parties, but the the issue of picking the proper aircraft for Canada's defense needs. In other words, the Liberals and Conservatives were very different in this respect, at least up to this point in time. One made a correct, though highly criticized, decision to go for the F-35, while the other, the Liberals, placed their partisanship above the national interest. At least that's how it appeared. Look at it this way. What if, all other things being equal, the liberals had decided just to go ahead and sole-source the F-35s, as the previous conservative government was about to do? Would Iveson's argument still be the same? Would it still be relevant? After all, Canada would still end up with what appears to be the best plane on this level, which may yet be Trudeau's ultimate choice. Next article I have from Matthew Fisher, June 8th, as the Controversy rages, jet choice planned as hasty, he writes. And he quotes a recently retired senior Air Force officer, who, by the way, is never named in his article. Quote, this gives Canada the wrong aircraft forever, or certainly for the next generation, says the veteran who spent decades flying fighter jets. The F-35 has won every competition other air forces have put it against. And another interesting thing is that nearly 200 F-35s are already flying, and he quotes, it is becoming more and more obvious every day that it is the best aircraft. One of the reasons long cited by the Liberals for excluding the F-35, also known as the Joint Strike Fighter, is that it has dropped dramatically in price. And get this, Robert, Finland recently costed the Super Hornet at $92 million each. How much do you think the F-35 was? I don't know. $85 million. And so now it's cheaper than it was when... Then so, it, talk,
0: so it's amazing how, how things change in a couple of months. If they don't get it, then price was not the issue.
3: That's right. Is that what, is that what that, you're saying? Well, that it certainly isn't now. Then, of course, Andrew Coyne on June 14th headline, fighter jet bids must be open from the National Post. And he says, Little did anyone ever suspect that, in fact, the Liberals planned to dispense with the competition altogether when they said that they were going to have an open and transparent competition earlier. And he says, yet it would appear to be the best explanation for the news as reported in the first week of June that the government intends to purchase an unknown number of Boeing Super Hornets via a sole source contract without competitive bids of any kind. And he writes, the suspicion is that the purchase has been undertaken for, and he writes, are you sitting down? Political reasons. (laughs) (laughs) No. Imagine that. By postponing the competition, neither buying the F-35 nor explicitly refusing to do so, they escape both the threatened lawsuit by Lockheed Martin and the ignominy of choosing the F-35 without formally reneging on the promise to put the bulk of the purchase out to competitive tender at a future date. Then there's a June 22nd article, again from the National Post, by Lee Berthium, with the heading... U.S. Navy struggling to fix fighter jets' oxygen system. Now get this, you think they might be talking about the F-35. No, they're talking about oxygen problems while flying Super Hornets, the same fighter jets the Liberal government was considering buying instead of the F-35. And apparently it's so severe a problem that the U.S. Navy spokesman said it was the force's top safety priority. Uh, Pilots are passing out and having issues with uh, decompression and stuff like that. The U.S. military has had similar issues with its F-22 fighter, but so far there have been no reports of this issue with the F-35. So that must be one of the improvements that they've made. So there's a bit of political news history which is still in the making about the F-35. Of course, there are a great many more dimensions to the broader issues of national defense and peace in this world than the technological capabilities of a country's military forces. For example, like having a robust economy to support those technologies. Like having the freedom to innovate and invent, among others. But we can only fit so many discussions into our narrow weekly time dimension, so we're sticking to the technical one for now. And what happens when politicians get technical? You know, we hear so much about prevention from our politicians when it comes to our health, when it comes to our safety, when it comes to environment. But when it comes to preventing war, the political mentality suddenly shifts in settling for some sort of equivalence or some sort of minimal superiority, which address post-crisis situations over choosing supremacy, which would avoid any crises in the first place. And let's be clear, we're talking about the supreme use of force over others who would use force. Like it or not, all political viewpoints including the right ones, the ones that protect life, liberty, and property, and the eternally vigilant task of maintaining an environment of freedom, somewhere on this politically hopeless world, require force to back them up. Force keeps national jurisdictions in place. If we don't patrol our borders, we'll lose our borders, certainly in terms of jurisdiction and lawmaking, We can see this process happening around the world, everywhere. Yes, ask
0: the people in Crimea.
3: Exactly. When you're only equal to your opponent, you have to fight as dirty as he's willing to do. The presence of force always represents a physical threat by definition. It is the threat of that force, not necessarily its implementation, that sets the established boundaries of both acceptable social behavior at home and the boundaries between nations. Between those two alternatives, having the supreme force or dealing with outbreaks of violence on an international scale, which would you prefer, (laughs) and how would you achieve it? I think the answer is by having the supreme force. By all accounts, that appears to be the F-35. And if the F stands for freedom... It's a bargain at twice the price. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any thoughts on what you've heard, Robert? I know you've been listening to this, and you're not—you've uh, had a military background. Would you agree with the assessments you've heard, or uh, well, I know, well, I know,
0: we're not experts on this. We're lay people. That's the thing—is yeah. that it's such, it's such a complex thing, and what we don't know and we don't realize is the the wheeling and dealing that goes on with these. Uh, companies, uh, Lockheed Martin and and, and, uh, the other uh, manufacturers of the other jets, and government and military officials. I'm sure that there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that we're just not privy to. And um, I think that um, the best way to do it is for the politicians to stand back and um, take the best advice from their military leaders and give them what they they ask for and what they say that they need to um, protect us.
3: The issue is, of course, that politicians are linear thinkers. And linear the lines you know they're being drawn between one election date and the next and that's the line against which they do most of their thinking because their interest is 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 in the self when the american democratic politician cited earlier by uh, bill whittle argued that the f-22 was quote an aircraft without a mission i thought that was odd because he was actually testifying to the effectiveness of its presence and, and he was quoted mm-hmm. by, by, by Whittle as saying, facts are stubborn things. The F-22 has never been in a combat mission because that threat has
0: not materialized. Well, hello. Because nobody wants to get into a right. fight with an F-22. And that's
3: what has always been the case. That's what happened when we first started in the Cold War with, a, with nuclear weapons. People weren't going to argue with the guy with the biggest gun, right? That's basically how it, they're not even going to pick a fight with you. It's when things become equivalent. You know, we talk a
0: lot about equality. This is not an area we want equality in. Okay? There was an old saying back in the Cold War peace through superior firepower.
3: How else can it how else can you acquire it? So I'm thinking maybe that politician should be asking why that threat has not materialized, especially in light of an event like the one reported by Bill Whittle. Yes, facts are stubborn things, but observing a fact and understanding its cause and consequences is a process that requires overcoming stubbornness. And I think the stubbornness is not in the facts, but in the people who are reading those facts and interpreting them. So that's all I've got to say on 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 the whole issue. Anything you might want to add to that, Robert? No? Well, let's say to our, our listeners, may the force be with you. If for no other reason than to give you the energy to force yourselves to tune in to Just Right next week. No need for deterrence, because that's when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, be right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into colour, colour into black and white Under the bedclothes,
5: everything will be all- With one swift move, the good doctor hoisted the miscreant out on his ear, declaring, What you need is an etiquette lesson. (laughs) I love that. You got your own tough guy catchphrase. Perfect for you, Fraser. Dirty Harry meets Emily Post. Come on, show me how you grabbed him. Use Niles. No, no, Dad. I will not toss Niles about the room. Oh,
1: no, go ahead. Rough me up, Mr. Big Hero Bully Bouncer.
5: Uh, Fage, why do you keep backing away from this? Well, I mean, you should be proud of yourself. We all think you did the right thing, and the newspaper does too.
2: That's right, and I'm going to fix you
5: a proper hero's breakfast. No, 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 Daphne, please, really, it's not necessary. Thank you all, it's just, this isn't sitting well with me. I find it hard to believe any good can come of violence. Mr. Chainsaw, this is Dr. Fraser Crane. (laughs) Go ahead, Daphne. Make my eggs.